our illustration of the high priest and uh, his garments and what we'll be focusing on the day, I don't have a little pointer with me, but that breastplate you see front of his chest with those 12 precious stones. And uh, that will uh, be the beginning of what we're going to focus on today and for the rest of our studies together. Now I want you to come with me please this morning to Genesis 49. Genesis chapter 49. We'll not read all of this chapter, but we'll just read a few verses at the start. And uh, just to give you a flavor of what we're talking about. So Genesis chapter 49. And Jacob called his sons and said, Gather together that I may tell you what shall befall you in the last days. Gather together and hear you sons of Jacob and listen to Israel your father. Reuben, you are my firstborn, my might and the beginning of my strength. The excellency of dignity and the excellency of power. Unstable as water, you shall not excel. Because you went up to your father's bed, then you defiled it. He went up to my couch. Simeon and Levi are brothers. Instruments of cruelty are in their dwelling place. Let not my soul enter their council. Let not my honor be united to their assembly. For in their anger they slew a man. In their anger they slew a man, and in their self-will they hamstrung an ox. Cursed be their anger, for it is fierce, and their wrath, for it is cruel. I will divide them in Jacob, and scatter them in Israel. Judah, you are he whom your brother shall praise. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who can rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, unto, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. Binding his donkey to the vine, and his donkey's colt to the choice vine. He washed his garments in wine, and his clothes in the blood of grapes. His eyes are darker than wine, and his teeth whiter than milk. Let's just stop there. At the grand old age of 147, in Egypt, Jacob, or Israel, as he's called, and as you saw there, uh, both those terms is used together. He senses that his time on earth is drawing to a close. His eyes have grown dim. Uh, he spends his days resting on his pillow. And so prompted by the Spirit of God, he calls together his 12 sons around him to give them what is known as the patriarchal blessing. In the case of his 12 sons, as Rabbi Telushkin and his commenter in the Old Testament said, they were called reflections, compliments, criticisms, and prophecies. Now his sons gather around his bedside, probably in the order of their birth, to hear the old man deliver what would be for them the most important words that he's ever spoken to them since the day they were born. Therefore there must have been great tension in that room and anticipation. What is he going to say? And they knew what he would say would not just be from him, it would be from the Spirit of God. And you can see that what he spoke was very poetic, 
sometimes cryptic, needs a little bit of unpacking to understand what he's saying, but it was from the Spirit of God. And so what would he say? Would it be a blessing or would it be a rebuke? Would it bring comfort and assurance or would they feel chastened and humbled and anxious about tomorrow? Now I should point out at this point to give you a little bit of background that Jacob, his 12 sons came from two wives and two concubines. So he had 12 sons and one daughter, by the way, from four different women. Now, you remember, of course, uh, how this happened in his past. You remember how that uh, he and his mother had conspired together uh, to get the birthright which legally belonged to Esau, uh, his twin brother, but who didn't want it and was willing to sell it to him or give it to him for a bowl of lentils. And uh, Jacob and his mother, seizing the moment in that, decided to trick the old father, uh, who was blind at that point, and uh, get the birthright. Having done that, Esau was furious, threatened to kill him. And so his mother said, well, you better get out of here, and you better go to Laban, your uncle, in Nahor. And so he took that journey and uh, in fear of his life. And when he got there to his uncle Laban, he discovered that Laban had two daughters. Uh, the eldest was Leah, uh, who it would seem to be was kind of a bit of a plain Jane, if I could put it that way. Apologies to anyone called Jane, uh, but you know the terminology. And the other younger sister, uh, Rachel, was absolutely stunning. Guess which one he fell for? He fell for Rachel. And he was smitten. And after about a month while he was there, uh, Laban, his uncle, said, Look, uh, I know that you're a relative, and it's not right that you should work for me for nothing. You've been here a month, you've been working, that's not right, it's not fair. So tell me your price. What would you like as wages, as it were? And so Jacob being Jacob says, Well, I really like your daughter's hand in marriage. I really, really have fallen in love with Rachel and I would like you to allow me to marry her. And so uh, Laman said, well, okay, that, that's fine. And uh, arrangements were made for the wedding. Uh, Jacob said to him, uh, I show you how much a lover. I'm willing to work seven years in order to get her hand. That's a kind of a diary. So I'm willing to work seven years Laban was quite pleased with that and, and uh, arranged the marriage. And the Bible says that those seven years, according to Jacob, went as if it was a few days. He was so much in love. Couldn't wait for the wedding. So the wedding took place. Honeymoon took place. And with all the veils and all the dresses and the dark, uh, poor Jacob didn't realize till he woke up in the morning and he looked at the beautiful lady beside him, only it wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. The old rascal of a father had tricked him and had put Leah there in her place. And you can imagine Jacob wasn't pleased with that. And so he went to Laban and said, you've filled me, you've tricked me. And Laban, cutting all this short, Laban says, oh no, he says, actually this is our custom here uh, that you're to marry the firstborn, the eldest. Well, of course, he conveniently hadn't told him that before. Sure he hadn't. And, uh, but he said, if you're willing to work another seven years, I'll make sure that you get Rachel too. 
And so here he is, worked 14 years for two wives, one he loved and one he didn't love, but now he's stuck with her and now he's got two wives. Now you can imagine in that household that over the years that he was there, which is 20 plus some years, there was going to be a lot of resentment, a lot of ill feeling, uh, because Rachel was absolutely loved and Leah was unloved. And not only that, but there was such hatred and bitterness between Rachel and Leah. And it really was getting out of hand. And then God took pity on Leah and he opened her womb and he closed the womb of Rachel. And so Leah began having all these babies. Every time her and Jacob got together, she got pregnant. And so she started to have all these babies. And she had four babies, four boys. And then she stopped having babies, but Rachel was having no children at all. She was barren. And she was very, very frustrated and very angry, even with Jacob. She really gave Jacob a hard time now too. And Jacob says, Am I God? What do you want me to do about it? I can't help it if you're barren. It's nothing to do with me. And so she said, Well, I'll tell you what. I'll give you my handmaid. I'll give you Bilhah. And you go in on to Bilhah, and any children that she has, well, she'll be like a surrogate for me. And so he did that, and two children were born to Bilhah. And then whenever Leah saw that, she was angry. <laughs> And she went to Jacob and she says, well, if she can do that, so can I. So you can have my handmaiden, Zilpah. And she had two children as a surrogate. So now, lo and behold, God opens Rachel's womb. And she has two more from herself. And so altogether, if you count them all up, altogether there are eight sons born into this household, and one daughter, Dinah, which is not just relevant at the moment. We'll tell you about her later in another study. But altogether, there's 12 sons. And you can imagine over that 20-plus years, the resentment, the competition, the ill-feeling. Uh, it must have been a, an unhappy, uh, contentious household. In fact, it was, and that seeped into the siblings, to the, to the brothers. Uh, you remember how they ill-treated uh, Joseph, who at that point was the youngest of the family, and how they sold him into slavery and, and treated him very cruelly, pretended his father had been killed by a wild beast. Uh, and then how Reuben, uh, how he uh, did a despicable and treacherous act with his father's concubine. And uh, so this was an unhappy, dysfunctional, sad in many ways household. But out of all of that mess, could we say, and all of that mix, there came these 12 sons who would eventually become the 12 tribes of Israel and eventually would end up represented on the 12 stones on the high priest's uh, breastplate on his ephod. So when he would go into the holiest of holies, that this was signifying that God had, the tribes of Israel, had Israel on his heart. Remember the son's names was on the high priest's shoulders, and we talked about that too in the past. And so, 
In our last study, part four, this is part five, we spoke about these stones in a general way. We said that us as spiritual Israel, that we too are on God's heart continually. And we're also on his shoulders. We talked about that. We also saw that we are also, just like these stones, we're individual. We are also individual, very individual. And as the body of Christ, Paul likens us unto a body of all different and various parts, but we all function as a body. And then, too, we are precious jewels. These were very precious jewels. In Malachi chapter 3, verse 16 and 17, the Bible talks about God says, when I, in that day when I make up my jewels. And so we are God's precious jewels. And also we are set stones. These stones were set in gold, setting on the breastplate. We are set in Christ. We have a position, a place uh, within Christ. So all of these, for those of you who are maybe here for the first time and don't know, all of these Garments the high priest wore and these stones, all of them are representative of Christ and his church as we're beginning to see. And so this is why we're doing this study. So now we want to look at these stones in the breastplate more individually. And let's see the reflections, the compliments, the criticisms, and the prophecies. Let's see if they have anything to say to us. Will there be blessing? Will there be a rebuke? Will they bring comfort and assurance or will we feel chastened and humbled? Now these 12 stones placed on the breastplate were positioned according to the tribal positions in Numbers chapter 10. Not according to their birth, but according to the tribal position in Numbers chapter 10. In Genesis 49, that we have just read a piece of, this gives us the list of Jacob's sons as he spoke and prophesied to them. Remember, they're all standing around the bed, and he began with the eldest, and then he worked his way around the bedside. Now, the order in which he spoke to them is not the order that we're going to find them on the breastplate. The order on the breastplate is according to the tribal order of Numbers 10, not according to the family birth order in Genesis 49. Are you still with me? All right. Now, the reason why I'm saying that is because the order that we're going to take these in is not the order that Jacob actually speaks them in 40, chapter 49 of Genesis, but the order we find them in in Numbers chapter 10. That's as clear as mud, isn't it? All right. So, just in case you're wondering why I'm going to be jumping about a bit in Genesis 49, that is the reason because this is the order we find them on the breastplate. For instance, for example, Reuben was the firstborn and Judah was the fourthborn. But whenever we come to talk about the breastplate and the precious jewels, then you'll find the order is that we talk about Judah first because Judah was the lead tribe in Numbers chapter 10. So that's the reason why we're doing this. Now, the first stone, the first stone in the breastplate is a sardius stone which represents Judah. Now let me just say right away that we're going to mention the names of these stones, Sardius and Topaz and Carabuncle and Diamond and so forth, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm deliberately not going into any detail about the stone per se 
uh, I, I do not want to try to extract every possible meaning out of every possible type and shadow. Uh, so I'll, I'll mention that they represent this tribe, but we're going to focus and concentrate on the tribe itself and what this prophetic message was to them. Is that okay? So in case you're thinking, I forgot to mention it, I'm deliberately not doing that. Otherwise, we'll be here this time next year talking about it, all right? And your head will be spinning. It'll explode. So we don't want to do that. All right, so Judah. More scripture is spoken about Joseph than any other brother, any other son. But more scripture is spoken about Judah than any other tribe. So Judah here gets a big mention. Some it's a very brief mention. Judah's got a big mention. For example, today we're only going to speak, this morning we're only going to speak about Judah. But as we go on, we're going to maybe double up and triple up because it's got less to say about certain sons and certain tribes. All right. So, although Judah was the fourth son born to Jacob and Reuben is first, yet Reuben lost his right as firstborn. He lost the double portion as firstborn and the right to be the leader of the tribes. He lost that because of this despicable act against Jacob's concubine. And so he lost that position. And whenever we talk about Reuben, we'll see more about that then. So, therefore, Joseph gets the double portion inheritance and Judah gained the right of leadership over his brothers. First Chronicles chapter 5, verses 1 and 2 tells us that there. By the way, those of you who are taking the word today for our home groups, where you give a little overview of this on Tuesday nights, you're never going to be able to write all of this down, so just get the bare bones of it, all right? Most of the people will be there on Tuesday night that's here today, so the, just get the bare bones of it, all right? Don't put yourself under tremendous pressure trying to write down everything I'm saying. Please, don't do that. So just get the bare bones. All right. There are a number of things that are worth noting about Judah in these verses. First of all, his name means praise. Genesis 29, 35, here's what it says. And she, Leah, conceived again and bore a son and said, Now will I praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah, which means the praise of Jehovah. There is always a reason to praise the Lord. And Leah found a reason. Now consider Leah. Consider how unfairly she was treated by her own father who used her as a pawn in his own personal game. game. Must have been awful for her. And then to find that she was unloved by Jacob and despised by Jacob's second wife, Rachel. That's a lot to have to face. And to have to live in that bigamous household with all of these tensions and feelings, that was a lot to face. But in spite of it, God blessed her. And God favored her. And God gave her children. And she was so blessed at this point she called her son Judah the praise of Jehovah. She just so wanted to praise God for this little boy that she had been given. So there's always a reason in the midst of all that we go through to find to praise the Lord. God advanced Judah 
as the leader of the tribes and as the first on the breastplate. Judah means praise. God puts a very high premium on praise. And the tribe that was named praise was the tribe that always led the rest of the children of Israel. They were always the lead tribe going through the wilderness. God bless you. <laughs> Young woman going to Scotland today. <laughs> and so praise is always to the forefront. And so praise is important for us, isn't it? Psalm 50, 23, Whoso offers praise glorifies me. Psalm 104, verse 4. That was Psalm 50, 23. Psalm 100, verse 4. Enter his gates with thanksgiving and his courts with praise. The first thing we do is enter his gates with thanksgiving and praise. Psalm 147 and 1. Praise the Lord, for it is good to sing praises to our God, for it is pleasant and praise is beautiful. Something happens beyond our natural eyes whenever we praise the Lord. It's not just a nice thing to do. It's not even not just a pleasant and even a good thing to do. But something takes place. You remember the children of Israel as they marched around the great walls of Jericho which seemed to be unable to breach in the natural. And all they had to do was march around and march around and march around. And then on a given signal, they had to shout, for the Lord had given them the city. And as they began to shout, and you can imagine it was a shout of praise, as they began to shout, then the walls fell down. But they shouted first, and they praised God before the walls fell. And as they did, then the walls fell. You remember the Philippian jailer and how at midnight that Paul and Silas in that prison began to pray and to sing praises unto God. And when they sang praises and prayed unto God, what happened? God sent an earthquake and the prison doors flung open. And out of that, the prisoner, sorry, the jailer and his family all became believers. And so there's something about praise that is absolutely vital and important in the life of the believer. And then part of this prophecy in Genesis 49, verse 8, Judah said, You are he whom your brothers shall praise. Your father's children shall bow down before you. Isn't it fitting that he whose name means praise should be praised by his brothers? as they recognized his leadership. Isn't that fitting? That he whose name is praise, means praise is, was actually praised by his brothers as they recognized the leadership. Jesus is our elder brother. And isn't it fitting that he who came from the tribe of Judah, isn't it fitting that we praise him as we recognize his leadership over our lives and as we bow down before him. Glory to God. Judah's leadership was seen quite early on and throughout his life. In Genesis 37, he saved his young brother Joseph. Whenever the rest of the brothers wanted to kill him, 
It was Judah who said no. Let's sell him to the Ishmaelites. Okay, he was sold as a slave, but at least he lived. And out of saving his life, ironically, Joseph was the one who eventually saved his life and the rest of them. In Genesis 44, when his brothers, Joseph's brothers, finally, finally went to Egypt and stood before him, although they didn't recognize him at first, it was Judah who was the spokesman for the family. And in Numbers 10, we mentioned a moment ago, whenever they marched through the wilderness, it was the tribe of Judah that took the lead that was the leading tribe. And in Joshua 15 and 1, when they conquered the promised land, Judah was the first tribe to be allocated their tract of land. And so what Jacob the father prophesied came true exactly as he said it would because this was a prophetic word from the Spirit of God, not just from an old man. This was from the heart of God. And in Numbers chapter 1 and Numbers chapter 26, two censuses were taken. Before the children of Israel went into the marching through the wilderness for 40 years, and then after they come out of the wilderness after 40 years, a census was taken before they went in. You remember how all of that generation had to die off and a new generation was born before they come out of the wilderness to enter the promised land. And a census was taken after they come out of the wilderness. And lo and behold, the biggest tribe before they went in was Judah and the biggest tribe when they come out was Judah. So all of these are telling us that the prophetic word was exactly as God said that it would be through the voice of Jacob. And so because Judah was now the predominant tribe in the land, the land became known as Judea and the people as Judeans. So that's how prominent they were. The word Jew, by the way, comes from Judah. It's a kind of a shorthand version of Judah. So I'm saying all of that to say this, to show us the accuracy of God's prophetic word spoken, even though it took many, many, many years for this to happen. It was a prophetic word. Second thing we notice here about this prophecy about Judah, that he would be a great conqueror. Verse 8, it says, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. And so this tribe of praise who was named Judah of praise became a conquering people. The greatest warrior that Israel ever knew was David. And he was from the tribe of Judah. He was fearless in battle. Courageous from the line of Judah. And you remember how when he slew as a young boy, when he slew that giant Goliath of Gath in the valley of Ephesdamon, how that when he slew him with a slingshot and the stone, how he ran and he took out the giant's sword and stood in his chest, exposed his neck and cut his head off. So whenever Jacob prophesied, your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies, he's telling him, you're going to be a conqueror. You're going to be strong. Then in verse 9 he says, Judah is a lion's whelp. 
from the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down, he lies down as a lion, and as a lion, who shall rouse him? Rouse a lion at your peril. Go up to the zoo and see old Leo lying there against the bars. Eh? Put your hand in and yank his beard and see what happens. <laughs> who shall rouse him? The Lion of Judah, of course, is a common symbol in Jewish tradition. The image here is a great lion, king of beasts, devouring its prey, fearless. No one can touch him. Is this not evocative of our Lion of the tribe of Judah? The Lord Jesus Christ, who is King of kings and Lord of lords. Jesus himself being of the lineage of Judah. In Revelation chapter 5, lovely little verse here. Well, I should read verse 1. I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals, then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And no one on heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. So I went much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals and that goes on and talks about a lamb on the throne a lamb who was the lion of the tribe of Judah the humble gentle innocent lamb but now a great ferocious king the lion of the tribe of Judah and so we see here, symbol of Christ, our King of Kings, and our line of the tribe of Judah. And thirdly, Jacob's prophecy in verse 10 talks of Judah's royal kingly line. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet or the lawgiver's staff, that is, from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall the obedience, shall be the obedience of the people. Now you know that in Israel's early history, it was ruled by theocracy. In other words, God ruled it. But they wanted a monarchy, eventually. Of course, God, being God, knew all of this, <laughs> since before the beginning of time. And so Jacob prophesies about a kingly line that would come from Judah. You remember that Saul was Israel's first king, but he was a Benjamite. And quickly God, eventually God rejected him from being king. Who did he put in his place? David. For what tribe? from Judah, this kingly tribe that was to be. 
In fact, it would have been impossible for Jacob to know this because it took 640 years from when Jacob prophesied this until David came along to take the throne. 640 years it took for that prophecy to be fulfilled. So when Almighty God gives a prophetic word in His Bible, sometimes it can take centuries. In fact, some of the things that was prophesied about these tribes, you can read about in the book of Revelation. <laughs> Hasn't even happened yet. But if what he did prophesy did happen, you can be sure what is yet to happen will happen. Amen? Because that's what prophecy is. So after 640 years, eventually David came along to receive the scepter and the ruler's staff. And he became Israel's greatest king. Now the right to reign in Israel would always and only be through the tribe of Judah, any others would be rejected. And they were rejected. That doesn't mean that all of the kings of, of Judah uh, would be good kings. In fact, most of them weren't, actually. Very few were good. But it meant that they would have to come from the tribe of Judah. Now, the greatest part of the prophecy is this. From Judah would come the Messiah. When all of those sons stood around that bed of that old man, he was speaking prophetically by the Spirit of God. You can be sure their ears were well pricked up. You can be sure they were really, really listening. Because one of them, from one of them, from the loins of one of them, would come eventually the Messiah. And it just so happened to be that Judah would be the one. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, verse 10, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. Unto him shall be the obedience of the people. Now even though Shiloh, for a time, was a name given to a small town, a very small town in Israel, where the Israelites, when they conquered and had their conquest in Cana, where they set up, the tabernacle, initially in Shiloh. And that was the place until the days of Samuel that would have been their center of worship. But eventually the Philistines destroyed it. However, the Talmud, the Talmud which is a collection of writings, rabbinical writings and thoughts and ideas and debates and all kinds of things, the Jews call the Talmud. The Talmud gives Judah, sorry, gives Shiloh as one of the names of Messiah. Ancient Jewish commentators also list Shiloh as one of the names of Messiah. And the right of kingship will always be with Judah unto Messiah comes. That was the way they always interpreted that. That the right of the kingship will always be with Judah until Messiah comes. And he would come from the lineage of Judah. Are you still with me? All right. I'm, I know that there's some details you've got to listen to, but so keep your thinking head on, please. All right. And then it says, unto him 
shall the obedience of the people. So that shows us and proves to us, does it not? It's not really talking about a place, it's talking about a person. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. You say, well, why did it get that name then? Well, maybe as a reminder, and maybe just because of this particular prophecy, this messianic part of the prophecy of Jacob's. The word Shiloh, by the way, is related to Shalom and probably means the one who brings peace. That's quite fitting about our Lord Jesus Christ, isn't it? Isaiah prophesied later that Messiah would be called the Prince of Peace. Isaiah 9 and 6, you'll see that in your Christmas cards, the little scripture that's very promised, prevalent in your Christmas card. Now consider this just for a moment as we continue. In Genesis 3.15, we know that the promised Savior, or Messiah, we know that he would come from the seed of the woman, from humanity. In Genesis 9.26, that suggests that he would come from the godly line of Shem, who was one of Noah's three sons. In Genesis 12.3, God promises Abraham, a descendant of Shem, that in him all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And in Genesis 21 and 12, the Messianic line was further narrowed to one of Abraham's two sons, namely Isaac. Not Ishmael, but Isaac. And in Genesis 25, 23, this is further narrowed down to one of the sons of Isaac, which was Jacob, not Esau. And in Genesis 49 and 10, we read it, we see that one of Jacob's 12 sons is given that privilege, namely Judah. In 2 Samuel chapter 7, 640 years later, God chose David from the line of Judah to be the family from whom Messiah would come. So you can see this being narrowed and narrowed and narrowed and narrowed and narrowed. And in Micah chapter 5, verse 2, the very place where Messiah was to be born, Bethlehem, a town in Judah. Now, Messiah must fit this genealogical bill. Has to fit all of that that I've just read to you. If he's going to be Messiah, he has to fit that bill. If you read in Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2, you'll see the lineage of Christ. He fits that bill exactly. Now this is very, very important. So listen in. In A.D. 70, Titus, the great Roman general, came in to Jerusalem and he raised it. And he destroyed the temple just as Jesus prophesied he would. Not one stone will be left upon another, Jesus said. And Titus did that. But what he also did was, in the raising and the destroying of the temple, he destroyed all of the archives, all of the family tribal histories were all destroyed in a moment, gone forever. Actually, no Jewish family can truly, officially know which 
tribe they came from because all those records were destroyed in A.D. 70. Now there's oral traditions carried down and they go by oral tradition, but officially, by record, by archive, they can't do it. It was destroyed. So, remember that right now that the Jewish people as a nation has rejected Jesus as Messiah and they're awaiting a Messiah to come. But the Messiah must fulfill all of these details. He must come from that kingly line of Judah. How are they going to know? There are no records to know. The only record we have of Messiah is right here, and you hold it in your lap. In Matthew chapter 1, chapter 2. Guess why it's there for us? To prove He was and is the Messiah. That's good, isn't it? Sometimes you wonder why all of those begots and this and that and family history is there. Well, there's a, there's a reason why it's there. So Jesus had to come long before the temple was destroyed. And that lineage had to be there and he had to fulfill every part of it. And he did. And so he was and he is Messiah. And he is their Messiah. Although they've rejected him, they look for another to come. But there is no other to come. There's only him. And one day he will come back again. And they will see him whom they pierced, the Bible says. So there's only one who could fulfill that, and that is the line of the tribe of Judah, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. Now we're almost finished. In verses 11 and 12, which is a little bit cryptic which Genesis 49 he says binding his donkey to the vine and his donkey's colt to the choice vine he washed his garments in wine and his clothes in the blood of grapes his eyes are darker than wine and his teeth whiter than milk a vision of fruitfulness abundance of joy of strength how strong, how fruitful were those vines that you could tie your donkey to them? These weren't wee skinny, wizened up, half-dead vines. These were strong, vigorous, fruitful vines that you could even tether your donkey to. An image of abundance and fruitfulness and blessing. So many grapes that those who were treading them out, it looked like their very garments were dripping with the blood of the grapes, it says, as it were. Such abundance, such blessing. Remember the promise about the land they would go to would be a land flowing with what? Milk and honey. Milk that would make their teeth white. <laughs> fruit of the vine is often seen in the Bible as an emblem of joy. I'm not talking about that stuff that gets you drunk and out of your natural senses. But the juice of the grape, the fruit of the vine, is a symbol of joy. Nehemiah 8 and 10, the joy of 
of the Lord is our strength. Do you ever notice when you lose your joy, you lose your strength? Did you notice that? All of us at times have lost our joy. Circumstances of life, stuff happens. So we all know when we lose our joy, we lose our strength. But when you get your joy back, you feel stronger spiritually, emotionally. You feel stronger, don't you? Milk stands for strength, doesn't it? Babies need milk for strength. Hmm. I, have a, I have a picture on my, my, my iPad. I was showing it to some folks there recently of, of a little child who, who, in helping hands over in the Philippines, this little mother brought this little child dying of malnutrition. Skinny, skinny, skinny. Little arms and legs like little skinny things. You've seen malnourished kids. That's what they look like. Then I flick the photo over and show you that same child. Six weeks later, his own mother walked right past him, didn't even recognize him. Didn't even recognize him. And it's only six weeks because of proper milk formula, good nutritious stuff, stuff that was high in content. Peter said, 1 Peter 2.2, 2, Desire the sincere milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Listen, let me bang this drum again. This is the thing that will make you strong, the word of God. This is where you'll get your strength from. Don't build your life on your emotions because they'll go up and down. Build it on the basis and the strength and the foundation of the word of God. That's where your strength will come from, that and your joy. And then Isaiah puts these two together. Isaiah 55, verse 1. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. <laughs> Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. We have the joy of the new wine. And we have the joy of the milk of the word. And we find both in Christ, did we not? And it came without money and without price. Because Jesus paid the debt. He paid it all. He purchased this for us. So what a wonderful picture of what we have in Christ is to be found in this breastplate and these beautiful jewels. And Jesus is our Lion of the tribe of Judah. And He is our King of kings and Lord of lords. And He has become our great high priest and he alone is worthy of all of our praise and all of our adoration as we acknowledge his headship his lordship his leadership in our lives then we glorify him amen amen well that's all you're getting this morning amen. so god willing tonight we may not do this every week as i say but god willing tonight we're going to look at least two more stones because some of them are much shorter than that. And let's see what we can learn and glean from ourselves. Amen.